0: As the news broke on Thursday evening, the country was in shock. Shock at the death of the Queen, and for many, shock at the realisation of just how much it meant to them.
2: What I've found really moving is what people arriving at Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle have been saying. People clearly shocked and very emotional about what she meant to the country. She's been the queen the whole of my life, and I'm 62, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, and looking around, a lot of people doing the same thing, just sort of yeah. looking up yeah, and, and, and really wondering it. what to do or with really themselves. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just totally strange. It's like, yeah. it's, surreal. it's such, a, such a weird,
2: weird feeling. I actually really got emotional when I saw the balcony, and I thought that she'll never be on the balcony again, and that's really, really sad. A lot of people said it feels personal, which is strange, because I didn't know her really, but seeing the balcony was the moment for me.
1: I've been so used to her presence since she came to the throne in
2: 1952. I thought she was just going to go on forever. I think many of
1: us did.
0: The Queen was the great constant. She didn't just represent the country and the Commonwealth and our shared values. She represented an entire era.
2: She came to the throne at just 25, in a country that was emerging from the shadow of war. She bequeathed a modern, dynamic nation that has grown and flourished under her reign.
1: Our Elizabethan age may now be over, but her legacy will live on forever.
0: Spanning seven decades, the Queen's reign was an era of extraordinary change for Britain. How different, seen now, compared to 1952, the year she ascended to the throne.
3: New Year's Eve and the
2: Royal Albert Hall in London goes gay for the Chelsea Arts Ball. The fancy dress theme was hunting, shooting and fishing, and it seemed that half the country was there.
0: The way our society works, interacts and sees itself have changed immeasurably. As the world evolved around her, the Queen visibly adapted to it, whilst also providing a sense of stability in an era of change.
2: I welcome you to the peace of my own home. That it's possible for some of you to see me today is just another example of the speed at which things are changing all around us.
3: Elizabeth's reign is not only the longest in a British royal line going back at least a thousand years, It's been an exercise in adapting to change without really changing very much.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the end of the Elizabethan age. As the country comes to terms with the end of an era... Today, we hear from two historians about how Britain and the world transformed during the Queen's reign. We begin with the historian and Times columnist, Sir Max Hastings, who remembers watching the coronation in 1953.
3: The Queen's passing is an extraordinary moment for somebody of my age, because I remember as a little boy one of millions watching the coronation on those creaky old black and white television sets that you had to bang every few minutes to stop the lines going up and down. It was an incredibly deferential age. And of course, we were still very much under the shadow of the Second World War, in which the royal family and Princess Elizabeth had um, been very important symbols of Britain. So the royal family didn't have to do much right to command enormous public respect. She became queen at a curiously innocent period when we look back on it Mm. in, in British life. And of course, it was also a period when Britain seemed a much more important country than it does now. Today, we have a much more utilitarian approach to everything. About 1954, my mother, who was a journalist, was on one of the panel of many questions. And when they came to the dreaded joke question, they asked the panel, "'If you weren't yourself, who would you like to be?' And my mother unhesitatingly replied, "'The Queen.' And in those days, in 1954, that seemed a perfectly rational answer because people would have thought it was good fun to ride around in gilded coaches and have flunkies bring you all breakfast and so on. I don't think anybody's naive enough to think that now. You have no opportunities to be responsible or to be reckless without an army of paparazzi descending on you. I'm one of those because I'm from an older generation. I feel a huge gratitude to the Queen. The new monarch is going to have to prove himself from day one to a new generation much more sceptical and it's going to be much more difficult.
0: It's so easy to forget how much can change in one lifetime. How different our society is now compared to Britain in 1952. Alwyn Turner is a cultural historian specialising in the second half of the 20th century.
1: The biggest social change, I think, has been the advent of women into the public realm. And there had obviously been changes. Votes for women had come in in 1918 and then expanded. And there were women in visible roles. But the explosion of that from the 1950s onwards has been really very extraordinary. There is a point in the late 1990s when women outnumber men in the workforce for the first time in British history. And that seems to me a really symbolic moment of how things have changed.
0: You know, it's often hard to remember just how different the world was when the Queen actually came onto the throne. How much of a difference do you think she personally made to that revolution?
1: There's this extraordinary uh, paradox in the British monarchy, the rules of which are designed to favour men. And yet over the last two centuries, we have more often had a queen on the throne than a king. These very long-lived women of Victoria and Elizabeth have dominated the monarchy. Mm. And I think there's a symbolic element to it. There was at the beginning when she got married, which was when she was still Princess Elizabeth, there was some attention paid in the press to the fact that she kept her vows traditional, that she was going to love, honour and obey her husband, which seemed an odd thing to do if you're the heir to the throne.
0: Yes, Um, I suppose that is difficult.
1: And then the coronation. It's the first time since the coronation of Queen Anne when the husband of the monarch has pledged allegiance to the monarch in public.
2: His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, does homage, placing his hands in those of the Queen's, and afterwards touching the crown in token that he will support it with all his power and kissing the Queen's left cheek.
1: And that kind of sets a tone for his role, which I think is very important as well. I mean, he was with her for so long. I don't think there's anything direct. In terms of influence but as a symbol that a woman can hold her own at the highest highest level there is something about that i think mrs thatcher had set off for the house of commons to begin the process
3: of setting up her office as the new leader of the opposition
1: it's easy to forget because it's become fairly normalized just how extraordinary it was that margaret thatcher became the leader of the conservative party and then prime minister I think she was only the third female prime minister in the world.
2: Her Majesty, the Queen, has asked me to form a new administration and I have accepted. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10.
1: The idea that Britain, this stuffy, old, hidebound, tradition-based country would have a female prime minister was a really big deal. And I think maybe the fact that we have been ruled by women of the status of Victoria and Elizabeth over the last couple of centuries, maybe that does make it more possible, yes.
0: The role of women in public life has changed completely during this era.
1: It has, and and, and symbolically, I mean, the really big jobs there have been so many of them have now been done by women. The head of MI5, the mm. commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. I mean, these huge establishment jobs. There are very, very few left where a woman has never done that job. I mean, you could think of the Archbishop of Canterbury, governor of the Bank of England, director general of the BBC, chancellor of the Exchequer. There are jobs that women haven't done, but you're now looking at one hand to count them up, really, for yeah. those really big Establishment jobs, virtually everything else,
0: which is an amazing change from it the It is 50s. extraordinary.
1: From a time when there were a dozen women MPs to now, it's sometimes you have to stop and look back at just how rapid that change has been. Um, because it, when when you're in it, you're still aware of what needs yet to be done, mm. but the distance that we've come is just amazing.
0: And it's worth just reflecting on how much the role of women in society has changed since the 1950s, working women, and the idea that you would have a career of your own, again, that's something that she sort of became a symbol of quite early on.
1: It is women in the workplace that seems to me to have been the real shift. But the other aspect to that that I think is absolutely crucial is in terms of how Britain has changed during Elizabeth's time, is the rise of divorce. Mm. This has been huge. A great deal is spoken, particularly by historians, about the raft of liberal reforms in the late 1960s that ended capital punishment and legalised abortion, legalised male homosexuality and so on. And the biggest of those changes, I think, the single most important, was the making of divorce easier. Because that strikes at what had been the absolute bedrock of British society, which had been the family. And the idea that divorce was now becoming possible. It liberates women because divorces tend to be initiated by women more than they are by men. And it changes the relationships in private that is then reflected in public. And there is an element, of course, with Elizabeth's own family in this. Um, yeah. The great controversy over whether Margaret should be marrying, the great controversy over the role of Edward Eighth and wishing to marry a divorcee. Mm. All of that has gone because it has now become part of our everyday life that the divorce is normal in a way that it simply wasn't uh, certainly the beginning of Elizabeth's reign.
0: And there is something about the role of the royal family in national life where they are symbols. They are people you can look to and see a family living their lives in public, but they represent so many of the issues that people are encountering in their own lives. And suddenly you had many of her own children divorcing just as divorce rates were really kicking off in the country.
1: Yeah, three of the four children divorced in the 1990s. It was a a big thing. And people took sides on it. To some extent, the sides that they took split the nation. It was incredibly bitter and controversial for a while. And I think people were taking sides to some extent based on their own experience. Because, as you say, they are a symbol. And people project onto symbols. Symbols only exist because we charge them. We invest our emotionality into them and people do that they certainly have done over the years in the last few decades with the monarchy
0: in terms of some of the other huge structural changes really in the way that our culture is made up when the queen came to power there was still an empire or there was just the remnants of an empire and that's obviously completely changed during her reign
1: yeah india and pakistan had become independent already before she became queen but most of the the decolonization program the the splintering of empire the decline most of that was on her watch i think she had played a very positive role within that because of her championing of the commonwealth
2: when i meet the young leaders of this century I remember my own lifelong commitment made in South Africa in 1947 at the age of 21. As another birthday approaches this week, I'm reminded of the extraordinary journey we have been on and how much good has been achieved.
1: It has provided a kind of a halfway house where it was possible to find a way through this without the kind of violence and bloodshed that one might have expected from the decline of an empire of this size. Empires do not tend to die peacefully. And yet the British Empire did. The most violent part of it was probably Ireland back in the 1920s, which is obviously well before her time. Mm. Mostly, the empire kind of decided to go its own way. But it does inevitably It does leave the country with a a cultural sense of decline because this was the biggest empire the world had ever seen, etc. And now it wasn't. That does feed into how the country sees itself and how it struggles to find a new identity and continues so to do. To some extent, we still haven't resolved this.
0: Part of that relative ease of transition, how much of that do you think was actually down to her as a character? How much influence would she have had on that? Or how much would it have been respect for her, certainly for the countries that kept her on as head of state even afterwards.
1: I think the word respect is important. She did clearly have the respect of international leaders. And again, it's that point of her being a symbol that people project onto her. Elizabeth was very good at not showing what she thought of not giving personal opinion and therefore leaving herself as a blank canvas onto which people could paint whatever they wished. And I think that did assist in the process of projecting the idea of an imperial family, which had always been part of the British Empire long before the Queen. The idea that this was a global family had been something that the British had developed in the late 19th century. It came into its own with the death of the empire. That was when that concept of family seemed to matter. Mm. And the presence of Elizabeth and the royal family gave some kind of physical embodiment to that that feeling that somehow there were ties that you didn't wish to cut entirely. You wish to become independent, quite reasonably, quite properly, but you don't actually want to just cut off the entirety. And there is a way there to bridge to the past and to the history that is worth hanging on to. For her, the
0: Commonwealth was a real priority, it Was something oh, she absolutely. really cared about.
1: She, she was completely committed to it in a way that I think British politicians did not understand. Mm. On many, many occasions, there were times when they were clearly just baffled by why she would be so attached to this institution, which clearly, in political terms, didn't matter in the same way that the European Union mattered, or our relationship with America mattered, or our rivalry or relationship with Russia or China. Mm. Those were the big global issues, and that somehow the Queen was constantly fixated on, on the Commonwealth.
2: Here at Buckingham Palace in 1949, my father met the heads of government when they ratified the London Declaration, which created the Commonwealth as we know it today, then comprising just eight nations.
1: And the fact that the Commonwealth went on during her time to include countries that had never been British colonies Mm. was an extraordinary tribute to what she had made this group of nations people wanted to become even if they didn't have that connection
2: who then or in 1952 when i became head of the commonwealth would have guessed that a gathering of its member states would one day number 53 or that it would comprise 2.4 billion people
1: it did become something that mattered independently of the empire and of the history And I think to a large extent that is because Elizabeth had made it such a big deal.
2: Put simply, we are one of the world's great convening powers. A global association of volunteers who believe in the tangible benefits that flow from exchanging ideas and experiences and respecting each other's point of view.
0: In more recent years, there has been a real questioning of post-Empire and how Britain has dealt with that and our relationships with other countries and, and also sort of um, post-colonial legacy. There was a sense that people were going on visits to countries that in the past would have welcomed a member of the royal family and now it looked slightly more uncomfortable. How do you think she would have coped with that in later life?
1: It was striking that very little of that was ever directed at her. It was not an experience that she tended to have very much. She rose above the monarchy as an institution because she was so long-lived. There was much more criticism of her back in the 1960s and 70s than there was towards the end of her life in the last couple of decades because she had been around for so long. And longevity is terrifically important in her story. But the nature of understanding empire and its legacy... That has changed in the last couple of decades. And it may well be that her role had played out by that point. She had smoothed the transition and left us as adults, ready to discuss where we were in the past and what has happened. And maybe she didn't actually have much of a role to play in that anymore. Maybe her role was purely transitional. And there is still outstanding business, clearly. There are issues that have yet to be resolved and I'm not sure that she necessarily had a great deal to say on those.
0: There have been so many other profound changes to society during her reign. Technology is one of them, and the way Mm. it's changed the way we live. The difference between the 1950s and now is obviously sort of impossible to sum up, but how much of a difference do you think it made to British life, to our national character, the way technology leapt in those decades?
1: I think what it enabled was a trend that had already been observable, which was towards a kind of splintering of society. The first half of the 20th century is dominated by a growing sense of community, of society going back to Asquith and Lloyd George creating the welfare state back in 1909, 1910. That idea that we had to work together in order to protect people within our own country, that charity was no longer enough. We had to to have political institutions that were capable of dealing with massive social problems. That was new.
0: And that certainly grew during part of the And that,
1: that grows and grows and hits a peak probably around the middle of the century and then there's a steady rise of individualism that you can already see in the 1950s and comes into its own in the 1980s politically. I know Margaret Thatcher's quote that there is no such thing as society was meant in a much broader sense than it is interpreted but there was some truth to the general perception of what she meant by there is no such thing as society and the technology to come back to your question, has enabled that to grow at an extraordinary rate. We are now no longer groups of people. We are now individuals sitting in front of our own screens trying to find online community, Mm. trying to find people who who share interests with us or experiences with us from anywhere in the world. And part of that is a destruction of the sense of place. And Elizabeth was very much about a sense of place and about a nation. And I'm not sure that that has a great deal of longevity to it now. It feels to me like we have moved away from the idea of the collective. We have, most of the world has, and technology has made that more possible. It has atomized us as mm. a society.
0: Because we all have our own worlds in yeah. our palm now. Yeah. You don't have to think so much about your immediate About the
1: next door neighbor. Society. Yeah. I'm more interested in the person in Oregon who happens to like the same music as me or who, whatever. Yeah. Which
0: is fascinating. Do you think that also accelerated the erosion of class being as set as it was in the 1950s in this country?
1: Class has changed vastly in in those years. You can see it culturally in terms of which cultural forms are acceptable. When the Arts Council was formed in the late 1940s, the first chairman of the Arts Council was Maynard Keynes, who made a speech which included the slogan, Death to Hollywood. They were very clear that the Arts Council was about defending high Western culture from American encroachment. The Arts Council had no remit over film because it wasn't considered one of the serious arts, Mm. let alone television, let alone rock and roll. All of this stuff that came from America was seen as threatening and was embraced by the British working class in a way that the British ruling class did not wish to see. There was a very clear cultural conflict between high European culture and trash democratized American culture. Hmm. And I think we can see fairly clearly which one of those won.
0: Has that also enabled, in a way, more equality of opportunity? You know, as class, for example, has become less important, or it's diminished certainly in its power, and technology has enabled people to access the world, really, at their fingertips, has that made it easier to move from one class, for example, to another? Is it easier for people to to make their way in society now than it would have been in the 1950s.
1: Certainly in the 1950s, whether it's as easy as it was in the 1970s and 80s, I think is is more questionable. What it has certainly done is allowed a movement in the direction that we don't normally talk about, rather than people moving up social classes. It has enabled those in power to wear the clothes of those who are not and to look as if they're being democratic, even if they still come from the same elite that they did in the past. Mm. Because American culture has come to dominate so strongly, it has given people the opportunity, as I say, to put on the clothes of populism and to appear as if they are less elite than they are.
0: It wasn't just the class system that was changing, so was our attitude to power. The 1950s certainly seemed like a more deferential era. But how much have attitudes to authority changed since then?
1: I'm not sure they have a great deal. It still seems to me that Britain is, as it has always been, slightly sarky, slightly belligerent towards those in authority, without wishing to get involved in anything too serious Just a general undermining of people in authority and a lack of respect. I think that has always been there. That remains there, a cheekiness at root. And yes, a lack of respect for those who are once elders and betters. Which has been a complaint since at least the early 19th century. That the younger generation simply don't have the same manners as they used to. They never ever did.
0: That lack of deference certainly became more marked in the way the royal family was covered by the media. The historian and columnist Max Hastings was a newspaper editor in the 80s and 90s and saw the way media coverage of the royals shifted.
3: I was editor of the Daily Telegraph and Evening Standard from 1986 to 2002. So I was at the heart of the media through some of the worst of the royal controversies. And I used to talk to them in those days, and especially, obviously, the private secretaries, but also to members of the royal family. And I was giving advice that may come oddly from a journalist. My advice was always say nothing, say nothing, say nothing. Now, the Queen didn't, didn't need that advice because she took that view automatically. But the others, I remember once when I was urging the Prince of Wales' private secretary against Prince Charles cooperating with a book about his life. And in the wake of some of Princess Diana's revelations, the private secretary, who I thought was a fool, said, but we've got to do something. And I said, but why? Activism is going to be disastrous. And I still think, that all the Prince of Wales's moments of self-revelation were pure self-indulgence and I think did an enormous amount of damage. In fact, I had lunch with Princess Diana one day and I was offering her the same advice and I said, let Charles make the mistakes keep quiet, keep quiet. And she said, yes, Max, you're absolutely right, Max, absolutely. Little did I know that at that very moment, our BBC's Panorama were setting up their cameras upstairs. Oh. So I had the the privilege of having my advice rejected by both the Prince and Princess of Wales. But I've always thought that the only hope of the survival of the monarchy... Rests upon absolute discretion. The moment you let everybody see the not very clever, not very impressive human beings who are beneath all the uniforms and the pretty dresses and so on, you're doomed.
0: And for you, I mean, while you were there, did you feel the mood change in Fleet Street? Were were the royal family suddenly a target?
3: Well, the deference disappeared. And in fact, I made a fool of myself when the first reports of the collapsing marriage of the Waleses came out, I refused to, against the judgment of all my senior executives, to run the stories in the Telegraph. Really? And I said, I don't think our readers would be grateful for reigning on the parade to this degree. And for weeks, if not months, we sat on the story while other papers were doing it, and the Sunday Times were leaning on it. And I was completely wrong, and most of my senior executives said so. And they said, you'll get no thanks for it, which was also true. But I felt quite strongly, I, I, I'm a passionate monarchist, I wanted the monarchy to survive, and I felt that then, whatever it was, <laughs> two and a half million readers were not going to like it. We were the ones to reign on the parade. But I look back and I think I was fantastically naive.
0: The death of deference also meant that media coverage of the Queen herself... Changed during her reign. Here's the historian Alwyn Turner again.
1: Some of it was changed by the royal family themselves. They chose to participate in a television documentary in the late 1960s.
2: It is extremely difficult sometimes to keep a straight uh, face. When the Home Secretary said to me, there's a, there's a gorilla coming in. So I said, you know, what an extraordinary remark to make, very unkind about it. Anybody. And so, you know, I stood in the middle of the room and pressed the bell and the doors opened. And there was (laughs) a (laughs)
0: groomer. Was that considered a mistake?
1: Oh, it certainly was considered a mistake afterwards, which is why it has not been rescreened.
0: And why was that?
1: It was felt, I think, that it was getting too close and too personal, and too much invading privacy. The word invading is probably wrong there because they chose to invite people in.
0: It was certainly considered a mistake by Princess Anne, who talked about it years
2: later. I never liked the idea of the royal family film. I always thought it was a rotten idea. The attention that had been brought on one ever since one was a child, you just didn't want any more. And the last thing you needed was greater access
1: The need to keep some sense of privacy, I think, made them readjust their views of where things should have been. But they did participate in the media because it was there and they have to, to some extent. But it does then change how they are perceived. And in particular, you have the rise of newspapers that are inherently anti-monarchy, even if they don't say that they are. I mean, there there have been very few Republican newspapers in British history. But the Sun in the 1970s, and particularly in the 1980s, clearly did not have a great deal of time for the institution of monarchy and was prepared to go further than people had done previously. And once that had been accepted as part of the media landscape, others follow it. The Daily Mirror in the 1990s leads a campaign to get the Queen to pay taxes HM Tax Dodger, I think, was the front page headline in the Daily Mirror. That would not have been possible 20 years earlier. No. That was because the sun had already changed the parameters of how you are entitled to speak about royalty.
0: And So much of her reigns coincided with television becoming the most immediate form of news and media that people relied on. Everyone had one in their home suddenly. How much of that difference between private and public and how you present yourself... ...had to change under her watch for the royal family.
1: What Elizabeth did very well with television, I think... ...was to restrict her appearances on it. And so they did come to matter, I think. I mean, obviously there was the annual Christmas message. But there were the specific one-offs... ...the broadcast in Diana Week back in 1997... ...after the Princess of Wales had died.
2: What I say to you now, as your Queen and as a grandmother... I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness.
1: And there was a great deal of of upset in the country. And probably republicanism was at its peak in that week. Mm and it was diffused to some extent by the Queen making a television broadcast because it's so unusual for her to do so. Similarly, at the uh, beginning of the great COVID crisis in 2020.
2: I'm speaking to you at what I know is an increasingly challenging time, a time of disruption in the life of our country, a disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many, and enormous changes to the daily lives of us all.
1: Uh, She made a a television broadcast that I think was very effective at the time and not necessarily particularly well-remembered, but because she did ration those sort of broadcasts, they did mean something when they happened.
0: You know, when we look back on this era, you can sort of look at the big historic changes that were happening in parallel to her reign, but as a historian, how important is that symbolically?
1: I think it's huge, and the fact that she was the queen for so very long during such a disruptive time as we've talked about the decline of empire the technological change the social changes so much happening and yet right the way through it we have this one person on the throne representing the nation and continuity and to me the the really key moment came in 1995
2: and suddenly there's a mother and her two daughters on that balcony which they graced 50 years ago eight times in all until their last appearance at
1: midnight it was the 50th anniversary of ve day and the end of the war and huge crowds gathering in the mall outside buckingham palace and on the balcony of buckingham palace it was queen elizabeth her sister princess margaret and her mother queen elizabeth the queen mother and the same three women had been on the same balcony 50 years earlier on ve day itself wow at that time they had also been accompanied by the king who was now dead and winston churchill who was now dead but the three women were still there and that sense of continuity i think it's absolutely enormous
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, the historian Alwyn Turner and author and Times columnist Sir Max Hastings. You can read more about the Queen's reign in The Times newspaper or online at thetimes.co.uk. The producers today were Edward Drummond and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, And sound design was by David Crackles and John Scott. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more tomorrow.
3: Planning for your next trip?